Joanna from Atlanta, Georgia, and you're listening to Beyond the Box. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. Welcome, everybody, back to Beyond the Box. It's so good to be with you guys. I am really fired up today about a series that we're going to be starting entitled The Slavery of Death. Now, this is going to be a three-part discussion with Dr. Richard Beck, who is the Department Chair of Psychology at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. Now, Dr. Beck has a has a blog called Experimental Theology, which if you've never heard of it, I highly, highly suggest that you get over there right now and start reading some theological deliciousness. There is just so much good stuff there for the taking. Um, Richard is just a great guy who just really has a lot of profound insight um, at the intersection of faith and psychology. There's just so much good stuff in this series. I just feel like this is about a three-hour conversation, and I feel like we've probably even just scratched the surface of all of the implications that are in the series. This is actually kind of a really condensed version of a 31-part series that Dr. Beck started, um, I guess back in probably September or October of 2011, and has taken all the way up into May of 2012. And I tell you, I'm just really excited. I think you guys are absolutely going to love this. This first part of this discussion is going to be entitled, The Sting of Death is Sin. And in this discussion, we're going to talk about ancestral sin, the orthodox view of ancestral sin, um, Christus Victor, and how Richard sees the Bible as describing us as enslaved, not just to sin, but on on a deeper level, how we are enslaved to the fear of death. So I'm going to get out of the way, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Richard Beck, The Slavery of Death, Part 1, The Sting of Death is Sin. Well, guys, I am more than stoked to welcome Richard Beck, Dr. Richard Beck from Abilene Christian University, the chair of the psychology department there, to the podcast. Richard, welcome. We are so glad to have you here. I'm just glad to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you have your, your book, Unclean, which I read in the last six six weeks to two months, mm-hmm. um, just really blew me away. And then Kevin Miller, just he kept telling me about your blog. And so I started reading your blog post, and in particular, I started reading the Slavery of Death series, the Slavery of Death, and it just, oh my goodness, um, I was just absolutely blown away. I printed it out, went through, highlighted, made notes, and you know, we don't usually do this. We'll do one or two podcasts with someone. Usually it's just because we run on our conversations for like two hours, and so we have to split it up into bite-sized morsels, but I just thought to myself, man, I really want this to be an audio form. I wanted what you were saying in those 31 parts to just be available in kind of a 
a microcosm for people on our mm -hmm. on our website. And so we're going to actually try and do a three-parter for you guys on this one. Um, we're going to start with the first part of the series, which we're going to dub The Sting of Death is Sin. Now, Richard, you start out in talking about the whole slavery of death. Um, you start out from a Christus Victor uh, approach, which mm -hmm. we've we've done a lot on the different atonement theories on the podcast, outlining the different atonement theories. But you even come at it from a little bit different perspective than what we've outlined. Can you tell us a little bit about how you understand the Christus Victor framework and how it plays into all this? Yeah, I think for me, it's it's this it's uh, the starting point is how you're going to define the predicament that humans find themselves in. And I think you're obviously the classic evangelical Protestant paradigm is the predicament is the wrath of God. And so you're going to have to figure out a way to, to, to deal with the wrath of God. Um, the Christus Victor paradigm suggests that the main predicament is being enslaved um, to evil powers. And in the triumvirate you typically see in Paul's letters is sin, uh, uh, the devil um, and death itself. And, and so if that's the predicament and the, and the one that obviously grabbed my, my attention is death itself as being the predicament or the final enemy to use biblical language. Um, and then you begin thinking then, okay, what does salvation look like if that is our problem? Very, very good. I know with Christus Victor, one of the big problematic things that I've, that I realized in the history of Christus Victor has been kind of the role of a supernatural agent we all in evangelicalism call the devil. Right. And right. Um, I know that Anselm, that was one of his big beefs with Christus Victor and why he came up with, you know, uh, his, his own view about um, really within the feudal system of trying to restore the offended honor of God. Mm -hmm. um, now you suggested, and, and this is going to be something we've had, We've had some lengthy conversations, especially on our Facebook page, about this subject of the devil. Right. Um, Christus Victor has seemed to kind of rely on a supernatural agent, but you say in in your work that you don't think there has to be a personalized devil. Um, kind of flesh that out a little bit for us, and what mm -hmm. do you think when you see the devil in Christus Victor, what do you equate that with? Well, um, you know, the way I approach the way I like to do theology um, is I like to make it, I don't have a great way to say it, it's robust across different paradigms so that, so that if I, the slavery of death series, if, if you believe in a personalized devil, then I think the, the series works. Um, if you don't though, I think the series can still work. And so um, it, it's, it's not so much that I, I think that needs to be denied as much as, um, I, I unpack the dynamics in such a way that even if you do not believe in a personalized evil force, you, you know, the, the series works. And, and what I, to do, to make that work, what I do is I jump off in Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15, where it says Jesus, you know, became flesh to set us free from the one who has the power of death. And and then the the key phrase is um, to set those who all their lives had been enslaved to the fear of death, mm -hmm. and so that's the connection in the series, and that's why it's called the sla slavery to death. So there's this sense that what what's keeping us captive to Satan is a fear of death, mm -hmm. and and if and if we unpack 
the the Satan as a satanic impulse or a sat or just evil or, or or violence, then then I think you can make connect the dots where a fear of death leads to these evil, sinful, uh, rivalrous practices that we get engaged in. And so whether or not you think there's an actual literal person out there, you know, wielding the fear of death over humanity, I think anybody, even an atheist, would agree that, that there's an existential anxiety that causes us to behave in sinful ways. So that's kind of the beginning place. And I think it's broad enough where you can be agnostic about a variety of different things, but agree on the empirical fact that there's a, that, that uh, the fear of death uh, motivates a variety of, you know, un, unhealthy or even sinful practices. I know that you really, um, in the series, what, what you're saying, I think is really important because it's less the way you take this. It's, it's less of a Satan versus God struggle as it is kind of a, a Christ versus death struggle, death right. and resurrection. Mm -hmm. Um, when, when you, when you kind of, you know, flesh this out into death as being the real problem and that the, it's the fear of death that makes us captive to, to the devil and to sin. Um, you really dovetail a lot into Orthodox theology and, and something that you introduced me to, which I wasn't familiar with ancestral sin, the idea of mm -hmm. ancestral sin. Can you talk a little bit about that and how maybe in Protestantism, how we, we might've gotten the cart before the horse? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the ways I phrase it at the beginning of the series is, is, is typically when you ask Protestants to, to describe the relationship between, um, sin and death. It, it, the causal factor tends to be sin and the effect is death. So we sin and therefore the punishment of sin is uh, death, uh, physical death, but spiritual death as well. Um, and so, and, and definitely you see that uh, in scripture, right? The, the wages of sin is, is death. But the title of obviously this podcast is where that causality is flipped, where the Bible also suggests that in many ways, death is the causal agent and it produces sin. And that's just not a way that a lot of Protestants think about it. But that is the way the Orthodox have tended to think about it, where the, this, this, the sting of death is sin. So here now sin is the, the, the effect. Um, and so the, uh, and so obviously the Orthodox believe that death entered the world through the, the, you know, this, the, the primal pair, Adam and Eve making a, a sinful choice, but, but they, but they do it a little differently than kind of like your, your classic, uh, Augustine or original sin where what is handed down in some way or spiritual or physical or whatever, some moral corruption is handed down. And so I am tainted morally from birth. I'm, um, the Orthodox don't see it that way. They, they describe what they call ancestral sin, this ancient sin that introduced death into the world. And that what is, what the, the consequence of the fall was less that humans in, uh, inherited a taint, a moral stain, but they've inherited the mortal condition. We are separated from the tree of life. Mm. We are separated from the, the spirit of God. And as mortal creatures now, um, we, uh, you can even think of us as Darwinian creatures, animals. We are now pushed and pulled the way animals are pushed and pulled um, towards we crave things. We put our survival needs ahead of others. We become self-interested because that's what a survival machine has to do. And, um, and, and it's because we're corruptible. We are prone to death. And so what happens is that Satan, 
can then use that fear um, in, in orthodox, classic orthodox, orthodox theology. Satan can then use that fear to keep us enslaved. And that's kind of what the Hebrews passage is talking about. The devil wields this, this, this power of death. Um, and be, because of our corruptible uh, mortal nature, we're, you know, we can be bullied in it by our anxiety, essentially. Mm. So I, I know, I know in, in talking about that and introducing the idea of this ancestral sin, um, you say that Genesis three is, has more to do with theodicy than soteriology. The, the idea of, you know, where did death come from than a story about original sin? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a sense in which, um, you can have your cake and eat it too in that, in that sin caused death, but now that death causes sin or is it a complete flip-flop in the Orthodox view that death was the originating factor? Well, I, I mean, I definitely think they think sin, the, 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 the initial primal disobedience got the, got the whole thing started. Um, but then, but so then one, but once death was introduced into the world, it has taken on a causal power um, that, that we are unable on our own to transcend because we're just biological creatures. There's no way that we on our own are going to be able to overcome that fear. Um, and so that's, and, and, um, and so that's kind of, and so I do think that they, there is a kind of a, for lack of a better word, it's not either or it is, it is both and it's, it's a reciprocal causation. What happens is once they get that ball rolling, once death is introduced, that, that introduces an anxiety, that anxiety produces us to behave selfishly and, in sinful ways where we kind of put our self-preservation um, in front of others. Um, and there that continues to keep us separated from God. And, and so it just keeps on going and going and going. And, 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 and so that's where Paul kind of, um, you know, in Romans kind of says, you know, wretched man that I am, I'm kind of stuck in this cycle. And so who's going to rescue me from this body? He says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Because that's what he sees is essentially the predicament, um, the, the being subject to death is what keeps him stuck in these. I can't do the thing I want to do. Um, I'm not, um, so essentially what the Orthodox are suggesting is it's not that humans are inherently depraved. It's that we are inherently weak. Mm. As, as, mortal, as mortal creatures, we just cannot uh, – we don't have the ability to lift the law. Uh, and it's our frailty, our mortal frailty, that is the problem, not necessarily the fact that somehow we're wicked intrinsically. So it's it's more about our mortality than our morality. Exactly. Basically. Mm-hmm. Huh. And, and, and the mortality part, though, feeds into the morality um, hmm. part. Because if you're acting in a self-preservation way, I mean, that's the antithesis of being Christ-like, which is being able to give your life away. You know, how, how is, how is uh, essentially a mortal creature able to overcome their anxiety to get to that point? Mm. Um, and so that's, that's why fear is often the thing that's in between us and holiness mm. and anxiety. You talk a lot about fear in, in the series about, you know, that whole First John 4 uh, passage that talks about perfect love casting out fear. That's been right. something I've really, um, for a number of years now, just that's one of those passages that I've seemed to have gotten stuck on that. I just, it's almost like the spirit won't let me leave, <laughs> you know, keep mm-hmm. focusing on this. This is where it's at. And right. you seem to really suggest in, in this series that that really is the struggle 
of the Christian mm-hmm. life. It's all about fear versus love. Right. Yeah. Overcoming that fear of death. Um, because that, that fear is what keeps us stuck in sin. And so to, to practice love, to become more conformed to the image of Christ, one's going to have to master that fear, um, and, and find, find life on the other side of that. Mm. Mm. So basically if you, if you're living in that Darwinian struggle of those survival instincts, then you're always going to be about kind of, um, you know, me, myself and I taking care of your own needs, which is kind of a inherent thing that, like you said, with that weakness, you can't escape it. I mean, we have to, Mm -hmm. I have to get up and uh, feed myself and clothe myself and bathe myself Mm -hmm. and all those things. And so there's almost an inherent sense in which I have to be selfish. And yet I'm also called to transcend that simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Um, now, I, I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself, and I'll probably do that a lot in this series because I want to cover right. so much ground. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're jumping to the end almost. We're, we're almost jumping to the end here. but um, And we'll probably touch on this a lot during the series. But right. let me let me just get you to unpack something for me. With okay. this whole um, ancestral and original sin, uh, and you mentioned Augustine and Augustine's mm-hmm. idea of original sin, is that really where, uh, I guess, the East and West divided on this topic and why as you know as protestants as catholics as as people of the west that we that we really see the christian life all about being about morality and about a struggle to um to be a moral person instead of seeing that the struggle is really about resurrection and death is that really where the split happened or was it where where do you where do you find that in history you know, I don't, boy, I, I don't know if I can speak authoritatively to where the kind of East and the West split. And if that was, you know, if that was the, if that was the defining thing, I think they split about, you know, uh, a couple different things in the, in the creeds, I think. But, but I, but I definitely know that is what has happened is that kind of, uh, Christus Victor frame of the kind of the first thousand years of the church, um, has persisted in the East. And that continues to be still how they see and experience um, salvation. Where in in the West, for you know maybe cultural reasons, we, we've we've adopted for these penal um, crime and punishment, you know, metaphors. And you know, so a, so a good example of that emphasis is is the way that orth is like the Easter Orthodox. Uh, I mean, the uh, Eastern Orthodox icons for Easter, where like in the West, you know, you always see pictures of the empty tomb. And, and there's an emphasis on the cross. So what saves us is the substitutionary sacrifice and uh, because that deals with the wrath of God. And the, the empty tomb is almost more um, just a vindication of that event. But but in the, in the uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition, their Easter icons are the harrowing of hell where they depict Christ in hell. And he's often um, – the gates of hell are shattered. And he's often reaching to two figures, a very old man, a very old woman. That's Adam and Eve. Mm. And, and so, so, so when they, when, when the Orthodox think of Easter, they're thinking of literally this, this, the captives in hell bound, you know, by Satan have been released. And so there, there's just this focus on, um, the, the liberation from death that you don't see a lot in, in Protestant churches. It's more about experience of forgiveness rather than liberation. I don't know if that's why 
um, they they parted. But but that emphasis, I think, you know, cascades into a variety of different, you know, has a lot of different consequences if you're focusing focusing on death versus uh, the wrath of God. Mm. You know, we we've talked a tremendous amount about atonement, especially nonviolent atonement, mm-hmm. um, on this podcast and. You know, I think part of the thing for the West is it seems like, like you said, with that whole cross thing, we focus so much on the wrath of God as being man's problem, you know, as being the thing that mm. separates us from God instead of, um, instead of mortality as being something that, uh, that leads us into sin. Um, when it comes to this whole death and resurrection paradigm and, and trying to understand really what is that what what's what the heart of the problem is um how do you how do you see the resurrection as playing into our salvation you know we mm-hmm. focus so much on the cross and you were just saying that in the east the resurrection is really what saves us right um can you flesh that out or unpack that a little bit about how maybe how that works for the in that paradigm right well i, I don't I mean, one of the things, if you read the series, I don't spend a lot of time on um, the the actual historical resurrection. And, and again, that's one of the examples where I'm, I'm, I'm staying away from um, uh, mainly what I'm talking about is the experience of the resurrection in, in the life of the Christian and and and. And the, the experience of the resurrection life of the Christian is a transcending of death in my moment to moment choices that in any, any given moment I make a choice, I can choose, um, the, 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 the path that, that my death anxiety is pointing me towards, um, or I can choose to overcome that fear. And this is the perfect love casting out fear, um, and undergo the risk of diminishment, um, and loss and even death itself. Right. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the one thing about what Jesus says that's scary, right? Is that he kind of puts complete self-giving as kind of the paradigm of what love would look like, you know, you know, the greater love has no one to miss than to give, you know, give their life for their friends. And, and, um, that's obviously a scary thing to do. So, so, I mean, in the Orthodox, obviously the resurrection, um, is, is, Again, this kind of defeat of, of Satan, where the keys of death and Hades are transferred over to Christ, and um, and He has now, you know, so you see that in Revelation, you know, he, you know, He has the He has the keys to, to death and Hades, um, and then what's critical also for the Orthodox is the giving of the Spirit, um, and I don't talk a ton about that in the series, but according to the Orthodox, what happens is because of the pouring of out of the Spirit in Pentecost. Um, that resurrection power is, is, is we're essentially what we were separated from in Eden, the, the life giving energy of God. Um, it now it re- returns in Pentecost and that, and that, so Paul's emphasis is constantly now live according to the spirit. Now we, we, we have been reconnected with life. We are more than just biological creatures now. Um, and, and so we begin, we, we begin this journey towards, uh, theosis or, or, or per- perfection. Um, and so there is a real moral emphasis in, in orthodoxy, um, often more so because, um, they, they tend to privilege because Protestants tend to focus on justification, 
we tend to be very much interested in like, are you saved or not saved? But for the Orthodox, they are focused much more on sanctification, the, the perfecting of the of, of the person. And what the Spirit gives us is the ability to begin that journey towards perfection um, mm. and, and holiness. Um, and so they do, but and, and so they do think there's a big moral struggle in life. Um, but mainly they're thinking of it as a, as an issue of empowerment. Um, and I think that's where you get into Paul's language about, can we apart from the spirit obey the law? And we can't, but with the spirit, we should be able to, you know, fulfill the law of love. Yeah. Yeah. That whole thing about love is the fulfillment of the law. Right. Right. So, so really what you're getting at a lot in this series is the idea of death, not just as a, a literal, that, that death is not just the literal separation of the spirit from the body, but the death is, is a whole mode of being. It's, yeah. it includes that, but that really it's all about, um, living for the self. It's all about trying to, trying to cover up the fact, just like Adam and Eve, I guess, in the garden, trying to cover up with, with the leaves. The fact mm-hmm. that we are vulnerable, that we are immortal, that we will die, and uh, just trying to find things, find things to insulate us from that knowledge and from that fear. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the, I think the interesting move in the series is kind of when I began halfway through, kind of engaging the work of like existential psychologists like Ernest Becker and his his kind of seminal work, uh, the denial of death, and. Uh, I think that's kind of the the newer edge because I, I I I think it's obvious that if if I feel survival pressures if I'm in a survival situation that I will tend to kind of look out for number one right I mean so I mean you know you can you watch the movie Titanic uh, right so when the ships goes down everybody runs to the lifeboats you know and and um, and so there's that struggle. Do I save myself or do I let somebody else go ahead of me? Right. So, but very few of us, I would say, are pitted moment to moment, day by day with, um, those kinds of choices. At least not the people listening to the podcast. Let's hope, not, right? like, <laughs> yeah, let's exactly. hope that, that, that they're not. So, so you might say, well, you know, okay, we're not in this kind of like Hobbesian situation where life is poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I mean, maybe that. So, so, but what, what the work of somebody like an Ernest Becker says is that, so when you're talking about we're covering ourselves with fig leaves is, is he talks about how our, our whole identity, um, our, our sense of self, our, our self-esteem, our cultural worldviews, the things we value, um, how they become infected with death mm. and that, um, and that our fear of death has been largely, uh, sublimated or repressed. And so even it might not seem like we're dealing with death anxiety on a day-to-day basis, but but in the series, I kind of go through those psychologists and theologians who argue that, in fact, every aspect of our identity has become saturated with this fear of death. And so the slavery uh, to death is a little bit more um, subtle and sneaky and unconscious than we might might have thought. And so I want to kind of back up and just kind of say that that the series is more than just talking about, you know, there's one loaf of bread and there's me and you and who's going to get it. It's a little, it, it's, it's more about 
feelings of meaning and self-esteem. Um, that's how we often see death anxiety manifested today. But that, that'll take a long while to unpack that. Maybe yeah. podcast too, I think. Try yeah. To- <laughs> yeah. I think we're going to, we're going to definitely touch on Ernest Becker a lot more mm-hmm. later on because he really is. Um, I, I had never read Ernest Becker. I, I didn't know anything about him until once again, Kevin Miller introduced me to him, I guess back in December and I got the denial of death and, you know, I, I was liberated and depressed all at once. Yeah. <laughs> Stimulus can do that to you. <laughs> I, I, I felt like it was a double-edged sword, and yeah. and now I feel more liberated. Maybe then I felt a little more depressed. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can identify. One of the things you get into that really, I, I tell you, Richard, there has been um, this idea in, in the series that you talk about of Sark's versus Soma, the two Mm -hmm. Greek words. I think I'm pronouncing those right. Is that right? Sarks and Soma. Okay. Um, I know for years I have had a real struggle with the word. I I know the NIV renders it as flesh in the book of Romans, especially. And honestly, for probably 10 years when I've read that, I've had a real struggle, um, or excuse me, NIV actually uh, translates it as sinful nature. Mm -hmm. I think New American Standard and some of these other ones um, say flesh. And it's always bothered me how we've understood that because there's been like a dual nature theory that says, you know, it's almost like God lives in the upstairs apartment and the devil lives in the basement. And so in your, in your life, you know, so that you are simultaneously, you're like a Jekyll and Hyde, you know, you're, you're half God and half devil. And there's this struggle that goes on in between. And you really, really, really helped me with understanding this whole idea of Sarks and Soma and being able to reconcile um, what, for many people, when they look at the flesh, has been a very Gnostic and low view of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been taught so much, especially in evangelicalism, that this word flesh is so evil that we almost have a hatred of the body. We almost, we almost um, really get into Gnosticism, I mean, when it comes to living the Christian life. Can you talk a little bit about Sarks and Soma and and what those are and how we understand those uh, in the book of Romans. Okay. Um, again, I'm not a, um, a biblical scholar. And so, you know, most of this work is, you know, borrowed from um, others. And so uh, most of that work was based upon an, the analysis of James Dunn, big Pauline scholar. And, um, but, you know, the more, most important word is Sark. So, Soma is often translated as body and, and his, his, his discussion of it is, is it tends to re- reflect any sort of sort of embodied existence um, that could be uh, so when we talk about the body of Christ that can be an embodied incarnational community but the one that that you're that mainly we're dealing with that promotes kind of the Gnostic idea is the one called Sarks and what's weird about that is that it has a, a range of meanings in Paul some of them range uh, from neutral, um, where he just uses, you know, the flesh and it's not a moral or pejorative term. It's just almost like, you know, you know, flesh. It's, but then he uses it in a variety of increasing, you know, you, you can kind of rank them and they get, they get some, so, so sometimes it means kind of weakness, moral vulnerability or weakness. And then it starts getting into, uh, not just weakness, but an actual force of evil, a location of evil. 
And sometimes in its most, his most extreme versions, it's almost a, like a, an entity of it unto itself. Like it's this thing out there that's afflicting us. Um, and, and so obviously if he's using one term in all of these different settings, is there anything that holds it all together? And, and Don's argument, um, is that the kind of the, 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 and it goes back to the Greek Orthodox view is that the thing that holds all those meanings together is that, um, Sartre is, uh, mortal. It's corruptible. It is, uh, and, and so in, and so in one sense, it's, it is an animal nature, but it's less about when we hear animal, we hear immoral or be, you know, if we're bestial or animalistic, we hear immoral, but, but in another sense, it's animal in this, that it's disconnected from the spirit and therefore subject to corruption. And therefore, what else are animals supposed to do other than, as Paul describes it, right? Follow their, follow our fleshly uh, desires. And so, um, so as Don unpacks it, he suggests that the, what really, when Paul evokes Sartre, he's really not provo- uh, invoking or trying to conjure up an idea of, some like like the original sin idea we were talking about a wickedness that's intrinsic to us, but a moral a, a, a mortal vulnerability that is exploited and then causes us to act in animalistic ways hmm. um, because we are without the spirit and therefore can only only act in these primitive uh, carnal ways. And so Sarks gets associated with carnality. But because um, it is divorced from the spirit. And, and so, again, he's putting, again, mortality and mortality fears and death at the root problem of Sarks. Um, and, again, that goes back to the orthodox privileging um, the, the uh, death causing sin rather than the other way around. Because otherwise you have what you have, what you were suggesting, which is um, the flesh is just somehow intrinsically evil. Right, and 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 Dunn's view is suggesting is it's it's it the flesh produces evil, but because it's weak and its particular weakness isn't necessarily wickedness, just its um, mortal mortal nature. I mean, what else can you expect out of an animal? Mm. That's almost the way Paul looks at it. What else could you expect from an animal? And if that's all we are is just animals or sarks or just, you know, flesh, nothing else, no spirit, no, then of course we're going to behave wickedly. Yeah. Um, But, but in many ways, yeah. So, so, um, I guess the main, the main move I make there is connecting sarks with, uh, death again. You really, uh, when you tie that in really with Romans seven, as, as I was reading along in your series and you quoted heavily from Romans six and Romans seven, I mean, to me, a light bulb just went off at the end of Romans seven, you know, where Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? You know, that that really is that, that flesh, that's really all it comes down right. to. I just went, it was like, it's like, I could have had a V8, you know I mean? It was, <laughs> it was like, oh my gosh, that's how simple it is. It's just the mortal nature. I mean, we have tried right. to, We've taken that word sarks and it has become so complex. But when you stop and think about it, if it's just about mortality, that really does explain everything. It explains why uh, we're intrinsically selfish and why we're mm-hmm. always looking out for number one because and while while we don't trust, I mean, it just 
it covers a range of things. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, yeah, because it's interesting. You don't see things like that when you kind of read it through a typical Protestant lens. You know, you, you don't, you know, you don't hear Paul saying, "Who's going to save me? Who's going to save me from the wrath of God?" He says, "Who who will save me from this body that is subject to death?" Mm. Um, that seems to be what makes him morally wretched. Mm. Um, and and um, and so and so the resurrection, Paul sees the resurrection power that is inside of us, you know, this tre- the treasure jars of clay that outwardly we might be, you know, dying inwardly. We're being renewed um, is, is um, and so I think it's, it's very much connected to Paul's uh, discussion about the spirit um, and living by the spirit. So, you know, now that we've been given the spirit, therefore go ahead and put off all of these fleshly desires. Um, and I think he's really talking about, capacity there you now given that you know you now have this capacity to do something that you were unable to do just as sarks mm. sarks by itself cannot do these things because it's going to be pushed around by satan and the fear of death um, and so you're stuck but mm. once the spirit has been given then you have the capacity now to respond to live to be holy you know to love yeah uh, in that sense I think that's one of the ironic things that, that I'm getting from what you're saying is, you know, when, when you were saying that uh, the Eastern Orthodox tend to focus actually more on morality than Protestants do, the irony there is that it seems like Protestants carry a huge, and, and speaking as someone who's grown up in the Protestant tradition, Protestants carry around a huge burden of guilt, of shame. It's almost like when we look at that, um, those things that Paul's saying in Romans six and Romans seven, mm-hmm. it's almost like God expected us to live up to this standard as if we had the potential. And from what you're saying, it's almost like, no, God actually didn't expect it because he knew that we didn't. And he knew that only resurrection life infused in us would give us the capacity to do what we couldn't do before. Yeah. So yeah. even though it seems like we're being called to a higher moral level, so that, um, you know, the Christian life, instead of it just being about justification by faith, it's actually about imitating Jesus. It's about loving others and giving of yourself and dying to yourself. Even though that seems like such a higher moral call, it seems like it's associated with so much less guilt and shame at the same time. At mm-hmm. least for me, that's how I can only speak for myself, but that's how I'm experiencing this is it's almost like for the as I've read this, it's been like, oh my goodness, God is actually calling me to maybe an even higher moral standard than what I had previously saw, but I don't feel bad about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which yeah, you're is... not, you're not, you're not, you're not dealing, you're not being pushed and pulled by by guilt. Exactly. And that it's it's more in 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 the or I think the Orthodox do see it that they they really see holiness as this great adventure. You know that, that it's a great adventure, um, and uh, uh, they have the, they have, you know they 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 see it as like this great great fight you know that, that you get to participate in, and um, and I think Protestants often have experienced it. For, I guess it's more as a burden. Yeah, exactly. You know? um, and so therefore they they that's not as a lot of a lot of fun. Yeah, think, you know, well, that's just personally speaking. I mean, as a 
as a guilt-laden evangelical for most of my life, (laughs) Uh, which hopefully I am now escaping as of the last few years. Um, That's really how I've experienced it, Richard, is simultaneously that, you know, we're going around preaching a gospel of God loves you unconditionally, you know, God, God will save you by grace through faith. But it's almost like kind of the, not to pick on anyone here, but kind of the Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron um, school of thought, the way of the master school of thought that says, you know, you've got to, you got to convince people that they should feel really guilty about themselves <laughs> before right. they're going to know they need a savior. And mm-hmm. that's not at all what I get from this. I get kind of a liberating, you really didn't have the power to do this, but now you do. And so since you do, just act like it, live into it. Don't, mm-hmm. don't bear this huge burden of guilt, but just live into the new identity that you've been called into. That's yeah. really what I'm getting that you're saying. No, I, th- I think you're right. Cause I think, and that's one of the advantage. I think that's why there's a growing attraction with Christus Victor theology, because, um, God's actions towards us, um, are, are wholly benevolent. The, the beginning message of Christus Victor is um, you're stuck and in, 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 uh, uh, and God, God has come to rescue you. You know, there's no, there's no wrath. There's no, you know, I'm not saying that that isn't a part of the, the metaphors of scripture and that God is not right. But I mean, but, there, but the, your predicament isn't, isn't God himself. Uh, it's, 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 it's being, it's being stuck in this kind of unsatisfying um, existence. But if, but if you begin with kind of penal substitutionary atonement, you know, the beginning move is you have to, to rhetorically make it work. You've got to convince somebody that, you know, God is, is really against you and demands your death. And then somehow once you're convinced of that, that then you're supposed to somehow pivot to experiencing God as, loving and that just creates i think a dissonance that you might never be able to shake i mean you you will always have in the back of your the very first thing you heard of god was that he was angry like that's your primal experience now and now he loves you because you've repented but your first primal experience as a child or as you know you're at a youth group rally i mean your first experience is like oh i'm in deep trouble yeah. Deep doo doo. <laughs> yeah. And, and you might, you know, and I think some of us, you know, it's hard to shake that. You yeah. know, that's, that's your first, that, that's your first experience of God. But in Chris's Victor, I think your first experience of God is, um, the gates, the gates of sin and death and hell have been opened up and, you know, you've been set free. And I know this doesn't have anything to do with the, the, the series itself, but I think there's a consistency here that I want to point out in, you know, when you start with a God of love that you have to end there too. And I think that's why, that's why for so many of us that are becoming dissatisfied with traditional evangelicalism, um, why things like ultimate reconciliation or Christian universalism, whatever you want to call it, why that's so attractive, because there's a consistency, um, that it gives to the love of God, that right. your, that your experience with God starts in love and no matter what happens, in the in-between that it will eventually end in love. And I know for myself over the last six years in coming to understand um, that penal substitution wasn't the whole story. And to be quite honest, I don't believe it's much of the story anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when in coming to understand that it has set me free from just a huge burden of guilt and shame. Because like you say, when you start, when your first experience with God is that he was ready to pound you to a pulp until Jesus stepped in between you and him. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how somebody gets over that easily. I don't know how all of a sudden you can flip the switch and start loving this father. That's really look makes an, a drunken, abusive father actually look pretty attractive, you know? Yeah. Cause you're always, I mean, cause it, yeah, it really goes down to the issue of trust. I mean, if you, if, if you know that there is that side to that person, you know, you're, you're always going to say, you know, maybe they're going to snap. I mean, are they fully trustworthy? Um, well, I always have to be walking on eggshells because clearly, you know, um, there's that side to them. Yeah. And, and I, and I think you're right. There's that, that, you know, I think a lot of people just struggle with that. They, they can't ever let go of that image and wonder if that God is not real. And so therefore they live their whole lives, you know, in, 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 in fear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in that sense, well, which, and, is strange, and, which is strange because when you get back to that that phrase, you know, perfect love casts out fear. You know, I think some of that fear of God is related to death anxiety too. I think a lot of it is, you know, when I'm when I die, what am I going to be facing? Yeah, yeah, all my stuff's going to be thrown back in my face, type thing. Mm -hmm. right. I, I know for myself. I mean, this is really it's a progressive journey for me. I mean, I've. I grew up with a very fearful image of God. And so, you know, it's been a huge amount of deconstruction in my own life to get to the place where God is actually trustworthy, mm -hmm. um, where, where you can actually look at God and think, gosh, you know, maybe he's not going to, I mean, I remember, I remember Richard being in Bible college and, uh, pull, I've, I've shared this before on the podcast, but pulling out of my garage and, um, taking my, my secular CD out and putting a Christian CD in thinking that somehow I would be safer in my travels if I was listening <laughs> to a Christian <laughs> rock band versus, you know, U2 or Coldplay or something like that. I mean, it's just, there's so much craziness out there right. um, that, that really all comes from the root of fearing God. And it seems to me like a huge part of, of this series for me, the slavery to the fear of death really comes down to the reason you're scared of death is because God stands at the end with a big stick. We think, mm -hmm, right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I mean, there's time, there are times when I think there's really only one real theological conversation. I mean, it, it comes in many various guises and, on, 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 and it shows up in many different subjects, but I really think this conversation is the only real conversation that really can be had, which is what is your fundamental view of God. Mm. And, and, you know, I think that's, I mean, to me, that's theology, you yes. know, who is, who is God. It's that whole thing of, you know, the image of whatever God you believe in is the image that you'll conform to. I mean, that really, it really does get down to that. Mm -hmm. um, in talking about this whole idea of, of the law and morality and, um, living into that and, and you, and you saying that the problem is really not with the law, but with Sarks, Jesus identifies the law with love. And I, I want to quote you in the series, um, a couple of quotes that I'd like you to, to kind of help us out with. Um, you say the problem with the law has nothing to do with legalism or works-based righteousness. Paul's worry about the law. Isn't the classic, classic Protestant fetish about legalism or works-based righteousness. Um, so, 
in in putting this together with the Protestant formulation of uh, grace by faith and justification by faith and this kind of thing, mm-hmm. how how do you kind of, or maybe I should say, do you? How do you, or do you at all, um, work these two things into the same paradigm so that so that salvation is by grace through faith, and yet it's a living into the law that we were incapable of doing before. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm writing about there and trying to summarize is there's a lot of work in Second Temple Juda- Judaism um, uh, on what we've tended to think when we look at the Pharisees and we look at Paul's discussion of the law, that what the, what the Jews were trying to do was work their way into God's favor. And, uh, and the person that kind of mainly framed it that way was Martin Luther. Now that was really Martin Luther's problem. Martin Luther was trying to work his way into God's favor and he kind of imported his own worry onto the to the characters in the New Testament. But um, uh, so, so all I have to say is that, is that we often look at the Pharisees and say they were legalists. But what's, what's problematic about that is um, Jesus is worse than they are. He's all, <laughs> you know, he's always, you know, he's always saying up in the me. ante, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's like, he's, he's really making it a bit worse. And, so there's always a sense where Jesus is, uh, and there's a way. There's ways to get around that. You know, maybe Jesus wasn't really, um, maybe, you know. So people like Martin Luther look at the Sermon on the Mount and said, the Sermon on the Mount is so aspirational. It's such a Mount Everest of morality. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount is just to humiliate you and to think you could even possibly try this. You know, and so, so uh, you don't even have to worry about it because. It's too hard. Um, that's a really, you know, it's a pretty bold statement to say you could ignore the sermon on the mount. It seems like a pretty good way of undermining the words of Jesus, <laughs> right? right. And, and I and I think that's kind of what is happened. That kind of what happened in the rest of the Reformation is that there's a privileging of Paul um, and, and his discussions in Romans and Galatians um, over against the Gospels, and um, and and we Protestants are still working you know, through that issue. The Orthodox, though, say, you know, the, pro- the, problem, um, the problem is not so much that the, the, the issue with the law isn't legalism. The issue with the law is that, as Paul says, the law is spiritual, and we are sarks. That there's an, I'm going to use some jargon here, there's an ontological disjoint between the law and the human being, that they are of two different kinds of things. And so it'd be like trying to, this is going to be crude, but it's like trying to get a dog to be moral because, you know, a dog's going to do what a dog does and human beings are going to do what human beings do. You can't, so in a certain sense, so, so in a certain sense, yes, when the law got laid on top of Sark's, it created an impossible situation and in the language of Paul basically made the situation worse. It just... It created more sin, more craving, um, and exposed just how weak we're, we we are. The issue wasn't that the law should that we shouldn't try to lift the law. 
and be and be legalists. The issue was that we couldn't lift the law. Mm. But a court, but Paul says, is is the law bad? He's like, no, the law is the law is spiritual. The law is good. the The problem is this disjoint. So it's with the spirit, the pouring forth of the spirit, that now there is an ontological match. I now am spiritual, living by the spirit, and therefore I can live by the spirit and 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 therefore keep the law um because of that um and and so therefore and then and then and then and then so what then is the law and that's when you fall back on the greatest commandments you know the fulfillment of the law is love yeah. loving god loving the neighbor and so and so and so paul fully expects there's at no point where he doesn't expect that you shouldn't try to love fully and, and, and so when I hear Paul say, fulfill the law, be Torah obedient, he's saying the greatest commandments. That's how Jesus summarized his Torah teaching. Um, but there's, but in, in one sense, you say, well, that's being legalistic. But I don't see Paul, Paul doesn't see it that way. He fully expects us to keep the Torah. Um, now, not the Torah of the Old Testament, but the Torah as Jesus taught it, which is the greatest commandments. Um, and so, and so you see in like Romans 12, you know, Paul's very much, you know, very, that, that Romans 12 is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. You know, um, you know uh, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Think of others better than yourselves. You know, pray for those who persecute you. It's very, very similar um, in that. And, and, and there's every expectation that Paul thinks that you should do these things, you know, um, and, uh, because you were living by the spirit now. Yeah. Yeah. You've been empowered to be able to, right. to yeah. live into that reality. You, I, I'm going to conflate some things here together, but um, in your book, unclean, you, you bring out some, um, some, I guess, exegesis that uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, did in his work on the old Testament um, between the prophetic and the priestly traditions. And I think mm -hmm. this really dovetails a lot into what you're talking about, that it's almost like, you know, if it, you, you were talking about how in the Old Testament, the priestly tradition was to focus on the purity codes and holiness. And it was all about uh, like a like a cultic ritual type thing, mm -hmm. um, whereas the, the prophetic tradition was all about mercy and, you know, God desires mercy and not sacrifice, which is really what your book Unclean is all about, kind mm -hmm. of un unpacks that whole idea. It seems like that's kind of what when we, when we summarize the law into the two greatest commandments that you're siding with that tradition, that prophetic tradition that says, mm -hmm. while, while that legalist thing is all about purity and holiness and ritual and making sure you stand at the right time and, you know, wear the right clothes and, or whatever, whatever your church does. Um, it seems like Jesus and Paul are really focusing on, forget all that stuff, forget all the things that, that marks you out as a distinct um, group of people from the world and let the thing that distinguishes you be mercy and love and self-sacrifice. I mean, is that kind of where you're, um, where you see the difference between a legalism that maybe Protestantism has had a knee jerk reaction against versus uh, a living into the law that maybe we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater uh, yeah. doing that. Is that kind of a way of, no, yeah, I think so. I mean, because I, I think what you see a lot um, in, in, in obviously there's 
um, we're not living in the same living with the same Levitical code, but in a certain sense, you know, given the influence of the Puritans and everything on the Protestant tradition, you know, they're, you know, for, for, you know, for historically, we almost have our own kind of Levitical codes, markers of in-group and out-group, you know? So when I was raised Christians, you know, didn't, we don't smoke, we don't use bad language, we don't dance. And, and these are all kind of like ritual purity markers that, you know, separate me from, you know, the, you know, the depraved masses. Um, and, uh, and, and Jesus, um, yeah, doesn't seem to, to, to focus much on those kinds of things. He, he seems to think that the, what makes his, his followers distinctive, um, isn't, aren't those, uh, things. Um, it's not that Jesus minds those things, right? We talk to the Pharisees, you know, I don't mind you tithing on your herbs, but you should do these things, but, but you're neglecting the weight of your matters of the law, like, you know, mercy and justice. And so, um, and so in that sense, yeah, Jesus would be kind of, you know, there, there, there is a, uh, a privileging of the prophetic tradition, um, uh, and, and love as kind of the distinctive, I mean, you know, and, and forgiveness seems to be critical to, to, you know, what in how he saw what he was doing. I mean, it's, it's, it's central in the, the, the Lord's prayer, forgive, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And, he he forgives. Peter asks him, "How many times should I forgive? Seventy times seven." I mean, there's a sense where Jesus is the jubilee um, in his in his presence, in his life, in his ministry. Uh, debts are debt, you know, debts are forgiven, and his followers are to kind of incarnate jubilee in their own lives. Um, and but obviously that puts you in a lot of tension with kind of finger wagging it. Yeah, you know the 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 the, the people in the world rather than living out mercy. Mm. Mm. With um, with talking about that, how do you see? I know, I know, in the first nine parts of the series, which is really what we're going over here, um, you start talking a little bit about mimetic theory, and we've uh-huh. talked a great deal on the podcast about mimetic theory with a lot of different people trying to really understand the significance. And I felt like, for me, and and, and Kevin Miller said this to me first. He said, you know, when I stumbled onto onto Ernest Becker. He said, when you put Ernest Becker together and his understanding of the denial of death and Rene Girard and his understanding of the scapegoat and of mimetic theory, when you put those things together, you almost have like the E equals MC squared of human behavior. Mm -hmm. How do you um, understand mimetic theory as being important in understanding the slavery of death? What what does mimetic theory have to kind of offer us in understanding this whole problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in, in, in one part of the series, so, so I'm trying to connect. Okay. So, so we're afraid of death. How does that make us sinful? Okay. So we're trying to connect the fear of death with, uh, the satanic impulses that we see amongst us. So when we see humans engaged in evil practices, so I'll just broadly say, you know, that is the satanic aspect of human existence or evil. Um, how, you know, however you read that language. And so the question is, how do you get from a fear of death to the satanic? And, um, uh, and, and, and one way obviously is, is through, um, what I call, I kind of, I kind of look at, I've taken some inspiration from Thomas Malthus, the, the Mount kind of Malthusian 
population genetics that, you know, Thomas, his, his Thomas Malthus, he wrote the essay, uh, I think it's called the essay on population. And it was the essay that uh, kind of triggered Darwin's insight into uh, uh, survival of the fittest. And so Malthus basically says, you know, that we, we tend to overpopulate and populations eventually get scarce on resources. And so therefore we, you know, they kind of crash. And so Darwin kind of looked at that and goes, Hey, Maybe maybe the, this excess of population is what drives natural selection. We're just the fittest survive, and they propagate. And so there's this inherently competitive dynamic inherent in the biological world where we are competing for scarce resources. Mm. Um, I then connect that to also kind of Thomas Hobbes' work in his classic political treatise, Leviathan. And Hobbes, I think Steven Pinker calls it, uh, calls them Hobbesian traps, where in a world of scarcity, when we're when we're when we're mortal creatures in a world of scarcity, even if we do not, um, even if we currently aren't experiencing a lack, like you and I have houses that we're sitting in, okay, even though we are not currently experiencing a lack, there is a sense that resources are finite and perishable and can be taken away. So there's an inherent kind of sense of vulnerability that kind of crackles through. Um, our, our, our psychology, um, that makes us inherently protective, um, and, and suspicious. Um, and so, so you can kind of see this in political discourse, right? You kind of see like, you know, we're worried about some sector of society, uh, getting access to things that maybe will affect me, you know? So I don't want to get political here. But when you think about when you saw, let's say, universal health care passed, affordable health care, you know, act, whether or not you think that's good policy or not, I think everybody can agree that empirically lots of people freaked out. Yeah. And one of the things they freaked out about was how would these other people who now have access to something affect my access to things? Is my welfare or is my Medicare? Do you remember that part that? classic tea party sign that somebody took to the street saying, you know, I'm against affordable health care, so keep your hands, you know, keep your hands off my Medicare. You remember that sign? Uh-uh, no, but that, I can or, see that. Jeff <laughs> was like, keep your hands off my Medicaid. So it's kind of funny. It's like, it's okay if the government provides me <laughs> with health insurance, but I don't want these other people. And what I'm trying to say is what you're seeing in that situation is is kind of another form of rivalry, right? You're seeing one group being rivalrous with another group because there, if there, there's just not enough to go around. And so if somebody is getting something, then somehow that might come back and take away from me. If not me, maybe my kids, maybe my race, maybe my class. And so, so there's this anxiety that sits in. And so it's, it's another source of rivalry. It's not, it's not necessarily mimetic. So it's not necessarily so much we're imitating each other. And therefore, you know, that's Gerard's triangular kind of idea. You know, two people want the same thing. And so we become rivals for it. And I, I think mimetic, I think that explains it. What, what, what this approach does is suggest that sort of just basic survival fears cause us to be paranoid and suspicious um, of any other person. Um, that um, that their their gain is my loss, mm. and, and and because of the logic of Malthus, there's not enough to go around. So you hoard and you accumulate, and then once you own it, 
you, 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 you protect it. Mm-hmm. You try to protect it physically, um, or you go to, or you protect it with your votes, you know, but you inherently become, uh, uh, essentially a, uh, violent person because you're inherently at the walls of your kingdom protecting from loss, which is at fear of loss is at root the fear of death. You know, the fear that if, if I, if I, if I lose these things, how will I take care of myself? And then what will happen to me? And so you see all this. So, so at root, again, I'm, I'm kind of placing the fear of death is perhaps maybe coming alongside Gerard and giving another psychological explanation for why we find ourselves in rivalrous situations, but beyond mimesis and imitation. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond just the fact that, that we're imitating each other and we learn to imitate, but the fact, yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from. And that, and this is why you say in the series that the natural social condition of mankind is war. Um, yes. Because since we're all subject to those mortality fears, we all, we all fear, um, that we're not going to have our, not only our basic needs met, but like you're talking about with that, with that classic sign from the Tea Party movement, um, that even some of our, some of our peripheral type fears, that if you even impinge upon those with maybe a basic necessity for you, if you take away a luxury from me, that's still a threat, still an existential threat. Right, right. Um, so yeah, totally, totally see where you're coming from. You, you say, uh, and, and this is going back a little bit with the Orthodox theology in the series that um, to be conceived in sin means that we simply inherit a mortal nature, a human mortal mm-hmm. nature that instead yeah. of this whole idea of original sin um, where we, in, we inherit a stain, instead we inherit the world that Adam and Eve left us. Right. So I kind of want to, I kind of want to leave it with that. Um, a teaser for the next section, I guess you'd say <laughs> that, that I want to, I want us to unpack some of that. How, do, how do these dynamics work with people like Ernest Becker, with Walter Wink, with, with some of the people you bring out in the series, how do these dynamics work? How do we overcome them? And how do we live into the resurrection life that helps us overcome the fear of death? So mm-hmm. Richard, thank you so much for part one. Can't wait for part two. Um, guys looking forward to your comments and interaction on the podcast. Talk to you next time. And oh my goodness, we are just getting started. Man, there are so much good stuff here. I really hope you'll go over and check out the blog series, The Slavery of Death. Visit experimentaltheology.blogspot.com. That's where you're going to find the links to all 31 parts of the series. I highly suggest that you start with part one and make it all through 31 parts. If you can't, well... That's what we're here for, (laughs) the audio version of this 31 parts. We just really wanted to bring this to you. I just felt really passionate about what Richard is saying in this series, and I just feel like it really helps to tie together so many thoughts that we've expounded upon on the podcast, such as the discussions we've had about mimetic theory, scapegoating, um, to me, it just really put together so much for me. Reading this series just seemed to, it seemed to almost be like, um, just a key that kind of fit everything together. Um, almost the Rosetta stone of understanding human behavior. I know Kevin Miller on the hellbound podcast, he said to me that he really believed that when you understood mimetic theory and when you understood the work of Ernest Becker, you almost get an E equals MC squared of human behavior. And I really feel like Dr. Richard Beck 
really helps us to kind of put those things together in a way that really clicks and makes sense and help us helps us to understand really a lot of not only our own behavior and how the world works, but really how to how to really see it for what it is and some really creative suggestions for walking in love and learning how to exit the fear of death and, or the slavery to the fear of death, I should say, and really live in the life of love that Jesus called us to. Got to give a shout out to Kevin Miller for introducing me to the work of Richard Beck. Thanks, Kevin. Really appreciate the, the hookup there. And I hope you guys are going to join us for the other two parts of the series. Make sure to check out his blog, Dr. Richard Beck. Also, make sure to check out his book, which we're going to be doing a podcast on in the coming weeks. Um, it's a book entitled Unclean Wow. Great, great stuff. If you get a chance, pick up that book and start reading such good stuff on the psychology of purity. Oh my goodness, such good stuff. Anyway, if you'd like to hook up with us about this podcast, give us ideas, submissions for future podcasts, or you'd just like to interact about any comment, question, snide remark, anything you want to put on there, um, go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Um, we'd love to hear your comments over there. Probably the best way to interact, to interact, I should say, is to visit the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash beyond the box. Man, we've just got a great community of people there that you can uh, just put your thoughts out there. And there's all sorts of people that will dialogue with you, interact with you, and just some great people to get to know. Great community going on there. If you want to subscribe to our Twitter feed, you can do that by going to twitter.com slash Podcast. This is a great way to be notified as soon as a podcast is released. And last but definitely not least is our telephone number. If you'd like to hook up with us and give us a call and leave us a message, um, we'd love to we'd love to hear from you. You probably heard at the beginning of this episode a listener intro. We'd like to do that with you. So if you'd like to do that, you can also call that phone number. That phone number is 626-24-NO-BOX. Those numbers are 626-246-6269. Now you can either call us and leave a message for us, or you can actually go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com on the right-hand side of the page. You'll see a little call me widget. If you click that, type in your name and your telephone number and, and just hit send. Um, our answering service will actually call you back and you can leave a message there. You can either, you know, leave an idea submission, a comment about a podcast that you've heard. So a great way if you're riding down the road and you've got a thought in your mind right now that you're afraid you're going to lose if you wait till you get to a computer, just go to that phone number and leave it there. Also, if you'd like to, you can give us some listener introductions there. Just simply say, hi, my name is followed by your name, and you're listening to Beyond the Box. So, hi, my name is Rayburn, and you're listening to Beyond the Box. Also, you might want to include where you're from. That's pretty cool, too. Guys, thank you so much for listening. So excited about this series, and I hope you're going to join us for Parts 2 and Parts 3 so that you can get the whole trifecta. Until next time, it's Beyond the Box, and we appreciate you listening. Have a great week, guys.